Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between Earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. So hello, everybody. Perry Marshall here with John Leaf. And John is the author of a delightful book. It is called The Secret Language of Cells. And I guess the best part of this book, this is not principles of molecular biology and analytical approach, right? Like as though the world needed another mind numbing, boring (laughs) textbook. Okay. And there are just not very many people, very few people who can explain the complexities of molecular biology in plain English that regular people can understand. Okay. This is a book that a ninth grader in high school can understand. That is so rare, okay? And what this book is really, it's a tour of all of the communication that happens between cells. And I'm not even sure most people realize that this is going on all the time. Okay, like maybe people just think their cells are little blobs of jelly that, I don't know, um, make let the blood flow or something. Okay, I, I don't know what most people think. But I know what most molecular biologists think, which they're talking about cytokines and like this molecule and this receptor, and it's all in jargon. And John is not speaking in jargon. And so when I, I, I saw that my friend Bill Miller had introduced this book and one of my, oh, oh, so I have a story about the guy that told me to read this. Okay, I forgot, I, I don't even think you know this, John. So I've got a friend named Emerson Sparts. And Emerson, I think he's 33. He's a child prodigy. He built the world's first and now famous Harry Potter fan site. And then he got rich in cryptocurrency and he's basically do whatever he wants to do now because he's got a bunch of money. And so he went, what he wants to do is learn and he learns all the time and he's into mental models and all kinds of stuff. And so like every two weeks, he picks up some new topic that he wants to learn about and then he learns about it. And he described this process. He said, so, Every time I go into a new topic, it takes me like 20 hours to figure out, okay, what's the language? What's the terminology? Who are the experts? Who actually knows what they're talking about? And it'll go, and then about 20 hours in, I'll eventually find somebody who can explain more in one hour than the previous 20 experts explained in 20 hours. And that guy, I call him an interdisciplinary explainer. And they're usually, they're into all kinds of different subjects. And they're interested in more than one thing. They're not just a specialist. And they've learned to explain everything they do in plain English. And he goes, those are like the most precious people in the world. There's very few of them. And like when you find one, you latch on. Well, okay, John Leaf is an interdisciplinary explainer. And he does this. And Emerson emails me and he goes, he goes, Perry, um, you know, I've been trying to understand cancer and cells and biology and the mystery of all this stuff. You got to read this book. So I ordered it. And then I come to, oh, William B. Miller is like the top, you know, guy on the, on the back of the book. And I know Bill and I interviewed Bill on the podcast. So that's the long story of how I got to John Leaf. <laughs> okay. And so we're going to talk about well, kind of anything John wants to talk about, but he's going to explain intercellular communication. So welcome, John. Well, thank you. It's wonderful to hear you uh, explain things. So, uh, the, uh, well, I, um, I'm a, neurosci- a neuropsychiatrist. I've treated patients, run interdisciplinary programs for 45 years and, you know, deal with very complex medical neuropsych cases. And then 
later, but I was always interested in basic science, lectured in neuroscience. And, and so then I became interested, what is mind and where is it? No one no, seems to know. So I started an exploration of mind on a blog called Searching for the Mind. And um, so Searching for the Mind talks about the human brain, animal brains, plants, cells, et cetera, whatever it seems relevant to finding what mind could possibly be because no one seems to know. And there's no definition of it. And there's no definition of intelligence or consciousness or all of that. So everyone knows that neurons signal. I mean, the kids know there are neurons, and they have neurotransmitters and there are circuits of neurons. So what, and, and I studied the human brain in great detail and I realized there's no center of subjective experience and there's no modules. They think there's modules, there are no modules. Every cell seems to communicate with uh, many, many other different kinds of cells and it, it's very interdisciplinary in the brain. So uh, you can't really find mind there. Uh, and of course, then there's the internet and science in between minds. So the mind can't be just in a brain. But then I started looking at smaller brains and I wrote some articles with actually a very well-known animal expert, uh, Beckoff, about bees and birds and lizards and how interesting their brains are and how they have very unusual, small, tiny brains, termites, ants, and how intelligent they are. But then I kept going on, into cells and I realized that microbes are extremely intelligent. I began writing about microbes, but then the human cell is vastly more complicated than the microbe cell. And I, and it, I started writing about the skin cell and the, and the liver cell and, the, and all these articles are on my blog. And then it, it became apparent to me that every cell is like a neuron. They're all talking to each other and they're talking to each other in various ways. They're talking through secreted signals, through these little nanotubes, through little sacs, through electrical signals, through waves, electrical gradients, all kinds of ways they're talking to each other. And I realized that that's how everything works, that it's not like, so it, it makes medicine more complicated because you can't just look at a kidney cell. If you're studying the kidney, you have to look at all the cells, the blood vessel cells, the neurons, and they're all talking to each other. But, you know, an infection occurs in, in the arm and the capillary cell, this tiny little cell, knows that and signals to the bone marrow to make particular kinds of immune cells, calls for them, sends signals where they are. They climb against the gradient. They get to the cell. The capillary cell says, OK, you're here opens a pathway for it. They go in, they're directing the action against the microbe and the infection. These signals are going on everywhere. And I realized that there's absolutely no separation. So when you consider, you know, what is the brain? The brain is really the whole body. I mean, there is no um, separation. And the most data I found was with immune cells. So there's a lot of information about immune cells, which we can go into, but I'll just mention briefly, it's the T cell floating around and sometimes in the cerebral spinal fluid doesn't get into the brain, but it sends signals to the neurons when we're sick to make the sick feeling. So we'll lie down and take care of ourselves. And wow. that T cell sends a pulse normally. Okay. Everything's okay. Normal cognition. Then it changes it to a signal. No, you got to slow this beast down. And so make the sick feeling. They're feverish, you're tired, you got to lie down and let the energy go to fight the infection. When it's over, the, only the T cell can tell the neuron when to stop the sick feeling. Also, there are new brain cells manufactured every day, about a thousand of them in the hippocampus, the memory centers. This wasn't really accepted until recently because, of course, all the cells the billions and billions or trillions are made in the fetus and then they're all pruned back without leaving a scar, mind you, they're very methodically pruned back. And then, um, but about a thousand arrive every day in various parts of the brain, most of them half in the nose, half in the hippocampus. And these new cells attach to new memories. So when you re-remember something, like when you're re-remembering a trauma, you attach a new brain cell to your new thoughts, like hopefully adding some loving thing to it to lessen the trauma experience. But that a brain cell. So it, when you have depression, you have less of these brain cells being made. And that's the fog that people feel. Mm -hmm. And when you have super stress, lights, immediate stress actually increases memory, but protracted stress lowers memory and you get the brain fog. It's the T cell that tells the neuron 
and the capillary cell in the brain to make less brain cells. And that signal, and when we cure depression for whatever way, either naturally or through medications or psychotherapy or whatever, when it's better, the T cell is telling the brain, now make more brain cells and the brain fog goes away. You don't have as much memory. So I don't know, I'm just going on with examples. There are a million examples. Of course, cancer, you wanted to talk about cancer. Should I talk about that a little bit? Well, um, I want to get to that. But first, let's back up and get some of your story because you clearly approach this differently than most people. And like you complain in your book that most scientists are so deep in jargon that in my opinion, I've read a lot of science papers where I go, I know this is peer reviewed and I know this is in a prestigious journal, everything else, but I'm not sure these people actually know what they're talking about. I think they're just regurgitating data. And you like, you have to know what you're talking about in order to do what you do here. So how did this happen? Well, what you, you know, did your mother, did the doctor drop you, you know, when you were born or like there's, there's some origin story well, it's interesting you ask that because I don't get to talk about that. But my mother was a sociologist and my father was a chemist. He was a lignin chemist and he invented some great materials that are in most of the big buildings. Anyway, but my mother was finishing her Ph.D. when I was a child and all through my adolescence, my father was trying to teach my mother um, statistics, which was the last thing she had to pass. And she hated it. And they would argue at the kitchen table over statistics. And so I tell people, I'm the product of an argument between chemistry and sociology. And, uh, and then I became interested in math and then went into medicine because I wanted to do something useful for the world. And then, you know, medicine is great. And I, and I, and I became a neuroscientist, uh, I guess. And, but I had still the math, you know, in me and, um, so people ask me in the hospital, do I speak other languages, you know, as a doctor? And I say, yes, I speak uh, molecular biology and molecular genetics. So I learned the jargon. And most people, it's these jargon, these articles are so filled with jargon, the receptor, the gene, the pathway. It's ridiculous. I mean, you can't make head or tails unless you just really study it in detail. So... Um, and even in a very closely allied field, you can't read the articles. So, and, and the other thing I learned is that when an article first comes out, little blurbs appear, various places about them. And then by two days later, you can't find that article because the title is mumbo jumbo and you can never search it. So you never know where that article went. So I found I had to do what I call my homework. Every single night, I would comb through the the literature and the sites and capture articles. So I was capturing articles for years and years. And then I started my website. And what my website basically is, is a translation of mumbo jumbo and gobbledygook of receptors and cells into English. And every week I would write, but actually my website's a little more complicated than my book. I realized in my book, and I had a big following on my website, mostly people who you know, knew something about science or are interested in healing or how the body works or whatever. But I decided for my book that I would eliminate all jargon, that there would be no jargon. And it's funny, the editors wanted to constantly put in jargon and explain things. Like they'd say, well, say leukocyte. And um, I'd say, why? What does that add to say a white blood cell? I mean, why do you need that? Um, macrophage. What do you need that for? It's a cell that eats things. I mean, what do you need uh, these words for? So uh, I eliminated virtually, I mean, you can't, the word mitochondrian is there, obviously, and, and the endoplots of your reticulum, but you can't eliminate some words. But I eliminated 99.9% of all the jargon and wrote basically, I realized I had enough material from my website I've covered all these different cells and, I, and it just dawned on me that this is how it works. It works through intelligent cells talking to each other, which is mind boggling to me. And it changes what biology is, changes what medicine is, because in medicine now, you can't look at the local cell. It's a little more complicated. You have to look for signals throughout cells. 
but it actually shows us where we'll look for new treatments because you'll find the new treatments in the conversations of the cells. Well, John, I believe that any good scientific theory can be explained in plain English. That's what Einstein said. He yeah. Said, yeah, you have it in your book. You said, I think he said, you know, it should be able to explain to a high school student or. Well, it, it's true. And, and that's like the mark of a great scientist is that they can explain what they do in plain English and it actually makes sense to regular people. So it's kind of like you start out when, you know, you're a freshman in college, you don't know anything and everything gets really complicated in the middle as you assimilate all of that. But if you achieve mastery, it converges back into simplicity at some point. So like Einstein was giving lectures all over the country about equals MC squared and trains and speed of light and all that kind of stuff. And, and real regular people sat in those audiences and, and they thought it was fascinating. It's like Maxwell's equations in electrical engineering. They're these beautiful, but totally cryptic things that, you know, are, are in a textbook and it's a math equation, but I could take those equations. I could say, here's what this actually means. And I would draw a picture. I would say, this is saying that the amount of electric field that comes out of the balloon is the amount of charge that's inside of the balloon. And, and people would go, oh, okay, that makes sense. Right. And this is actually how science should be, but there's so little of that that happens. Okay. So what was the initial motivation? Like, okay, you're obviously a curious person, but I don't know that it seems like there's something missing in the story. Like something propelled you. Well, I'm trying to find mind in nature and because my gut feeling and, and I vowed on my website to do something that is odd. Also, I would to not speculate. So I would only, you know, everyone speculates and, I could speculate, but I didn't want to. I realized the wars going on between uh, extremists of science and extremist religious people, and I didn't want to be part of any of that. So I just wanted to take articles out of Science Magazine and Nature Magazine, the top journals, and then just translate that information into English, simple English. And I real I thought that that there's enough science going on that that would help me discover what mind is and where it is in nature. Yeah. My bias and my speculation is that mind is an aspect of nature, like physics, like, you know, like matter, energy, and that information, obviously, and consciousness are connected and, and they're uh, probably everywhere. But I, I didn't go with that idea. A lot of people then speculate about quantum mechanics. And I did write a little bit, you know, that there are theories about this. I didn't want to do theories. I wanted facts. And so I endeavored to find scientific facts that would seem to show intelligent activity. And it all came down to cells. But of course, the book is divided into four parts. So and you have to divide it up since I said there's no separation of the body and the mind and the brain, but you have to talk about it. So I, there's a body section of white blood cells and cancer and skin cells and gut cells. There's a brain section, each of the brain cells, and then about pain and inflammation. And then the organelles, which are the compartments of cells, the mitochondria, the ER. I, I talk, they are also basically microbes that were, you know, and those symbiosis, you know, so our organelles are basically creatures also. And so I did a section on microbes and then I did a section on organelles. And the very last chapter is a tease. I threw in one chapter on a, a molecule called mTOR that seems to be intelligent also and has activity that is like a cell. Like how can a molecule behave like it's a cell? First you say, how can a microbe behave like it has a brain? But then once you accept that they do, then organelles do also, but can a molecule do that? So um, I think I gave one example in the book and now I'm investigating sort of deeper. So it, to me, I had the most material about cells and it was the most basic. And of course the definition of life, 
if you ask scientists, and I guess Zimmer has a wonderful book about this recently, how none of the definitions make any sense. I mean, you can't say reproduction because it means we're dead because we're not reproducing. You know? So, no. you know, there's so many, but it's a, most people say it's a cell that has metabolism and reproduces. And I'm now adding to that also communicates and is intelligent. So in other words, the definition of life has to include information and communication. And I've also, there's a section on viruses. They're the, they're the edge of our knowledge of everything because viruses are supposedly just a piece of DNA or RNA. And uh, of course, we're just a piece of DNA or RNA probably also. <laughs> but, uh, the, so, uh, some people, right. Yeah. So uh, are viruses alive? Well, to me, they obviously are because of their behavior. And, and I write about the lifestyle, the complicated lifestyles of Ebola and HIV. And I, I put COVID's in there. It came out just before COVID. And I mean, just during COVID. And then, um, but what's very significant to me is that viruses now signal also. So they have entered the family of beings that communicate and are part of the definition of life. And we can talk about that or not, but that... Let's talk about viruses and yeah. then let's talk about cancer. Let, let's do okay. it that way. So regale us. Okay, well, at first I wrote the extremely complicated lifestyle of HIV and Ebola and varicella. Varicella takes over the motor and the skin and runs it like a car up to the uh, nucleus and then stays there, changes its lifestyle and then decides to come down. Again, takes over, commandeers the motor, runs it faster, takes it all the way down uh, the axon. Ebola makes decoys, evades with only nine genes. They're you're talking about seven genes and nine genes and like 12 proteins. They take on the cell and they take over the cell and they create factories in the cell and they just run everything while they're there. And so to me, they seemed intelligent. You know, so I was asking that question, are they intelligent? Do they have mind also? And then in 2017, it was discovered the first signal. So the virus enters the cell. It makes a quorum sensing signal out of a, a, a peptide, six uh, amino acids, and sends that signal. And then the next one enters, sends the signal. And when a, a, enough of them accumulate, then they know, well, this is too many. We're going to kill the cell. Should we kill the cell? Should we not kill the cell? And so they figure out together, okay, no, we need this cell now. We're not going to kill it yet. Uh, okay, we've had enough of that cell. We can move on to this cell uh, as a group. They make this decision. And so one of the, these are phage viruses. Uh, the discoveries were viruses uh, that deal with bacteria. And then 15 more viruses have languages. And then it was discovered that a phage, one type of virus can listen in on the other viruses and use those signals also to figure out what to do. And they can't actually send a signal to that other group, but they can understand what the other group is saying and then act upon it so far. I mean, you know, and then, and then there's the CRISPR stuff. Everyone knows about CRISPR, or at least they've heard about it. No one really understands what it is. CRISPR is just a way that bacteria figure out how to combat cell uh, viruses. So a virus comes in, it's a little piece of DNA or RNA, and what they do is they send a, a scissors and cut it and take a little piece and put it into a file cabinet. And then when the next one comes in, they cut it and they say, ah, this is what we have here. And they then send uh, a machine to grab it and then cut it right at that point using it as a guide. So CRISPR is a brilliant uh, technique that bacteria made to fight viruses. And there are at least 50 different kinds now. There's all kinds of CRISPRs. Uh, I mean, I'm, CRISPRs I'm using as a generic word. Uh, uh, they're all a little different. But now what we've learned is that the virus is fighting back against CRISPR. The virus sends a kamikaze, sends one of their colleagues in to go at the CRISPR and cuts it and dies in the process. And that molecule from the CRISPR then becomes a target of the other viruses. They then create a way to target that protein. Uh, when I say they create a way, viruses are constantly 
trading genetic material. They, viruses are the dominant life form on earth by far. Every day, the phage viruses kill half of the bacteria in the ocean. They determine how much oxygen we have, how much CO2 we have. Viruses are everywhere and they're in us. There's trillions and trillions of them. But what they are, are little pieces of information. They're pieces of a strand of DNA, again, which is how evolution works. It takes a strand of DNA. And so, for example, I mean, a lot of people know, but not everyone knows that a piece of the virus is how we got the placenta. It's how we got amylase, a digestive enzyme. Right now in us, there are 8% more than our genes. There are virus genes that are very vital to the brain. 50% are virus-like genes, jumping genes that we're constantly kind of hassling with, but some of them are necessary and are part of uh, the evolution of the human brain. So the interaction of us with viruses is everywhere. And they are the repository of all DNA. You know, so Bill says, Bill was the brilliant guy who said that in the gut, in his wonderful book, in the gut, there are 300 times, as, there's a trillion bacteria. And we, let's say we have 20,000 genes and 100,000 proteins. There are 300 times as many genes from the gut bacteria making 300 times as many products. So we are filled with bacterial products. Viruses are vastly more than that. And they're everywhere and they're constantly moving around and trading stuff. So they really run the world and they will survive. Even if the humans kill themselves off, they're gonna survive and do quite well. You're talking about Bill Miller, the cosmos within or microcosm? Yeah, microcosmos, yeah. Microcosmos, yes. Wonderful book, yeah. So how do viruses evolve? How does that work? No one really knows. There's a very large, the mimi viruses and the satellite viruses they are so large, they're larger than a small bacteria. And they have viruses, they have viruses like phage viruses to the virus. So there are viruses that have their own viruses. Um, <laughs> and that leads you to wonder, did they start as a bacteria and then deteriorate? Or did they grow and grow and grow and then become bacteria? You know, the origin of life, someone said it's like you go around the golf course and play a set of golf and then the golf clubs go and play a set by themselves. You know, we don't have any idea how this complexity arose, but we do know that the virus lifestyle is complex. It drives much of the world. They do all kinds of intelligent things. They signal to each other. So what I often say is that it took 30 years for us to figure out what the microbe signals were doing and how influential they are for diabetes, for obesity, for cancer, for everything. It's only three years, four years that we know the viruses signal. I suspected that, but there was no proof of that. And again, I always go with proof and with data from mm -hmm. science, the top scientific magazines. Right now, we're learning about that, but there's no question that the intelligence is at that level, or how could they be signaling also? And then you're talking about intelligence at the level of a virus, not a cell. So what's the difference between a virus laying on your kitchen table and a virus in a cell? The virus on the kitchen table is protected by a, uh, an elaborately built capsid, some with a, um, a lipid coating also. And they have these, everyone knows about the spikes now because of COVID. They have ways of attaching to cells and then entering the cell, which is not simple to enter the cell. They manipulate the actin molecules beneath the membrane they can even move them along. They, it, it's so elaborate. It, 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 it's just amazing uh, how elaborate the molecular aspects to this are, but they are able to figure out how to, and, and the cell is thousands of times bigger and has all kinds of ways to fight viruses and they trick all of them and they get inside the cell. They then travel usually in a sack 
hidden because the cell has a mechanism to attack any naked RNA or DNA in the cytoplasm, not in the nucleus, but in the cytoplasm. They're not supposed to be there. So the question other than messenger RNA, which is then usually hidden in a molecule protein. So they attack, somehow they evade that attack. They get to usually the, uh, I just hate the word endoplasmic reticulum because it's just the stupidest word. It's like oligodendrocyte. I mean, they're so ridiculous, these words. The endoplasmic reticulum, for those who don't know, is the factory of proteins and lipids. It's membranes all lined with machinery. It's highly organized machinery. And the virus takes over a room and makes their own factory. And we call that's called the virocell. Not by everyone, because a lot of people just say, oh, they're not alive, you know, ignore them. But anyone who studies viruses knows about the virocell. And the virocell is basically a factory where they place this enzyme here. They have a human enzyme here. They have the human ribosomes. They have their enzymes and the human enzymes all there. And they then do things. They make different proteins. They then, some of them go into the nucleus for uh, action there. And some of them, and to get through the nuclear pore is a trick. The nuclear pore is a really complicated machine. It involves hundreds of large floating complexes of huge proteins that with a web that surrounds it. To get through the nuclear pore, you really have to know something. It involves signaling, and it's like a really heavily armed border between two countries. But they get in, and then they not only get in, but they then cut and place DNA in our DNA. And this is where jump, you know, your book, you talk about the transposons and the transposition. I mean, they know how to cut and get in there, as do the jumping genes, which are there all the time, cutting themselves out, moving, copying. It's like the self-editing of the cell that goes on with fixing DNA breaks and things like that. There's so many aspects to this, but they're obviously, and they do this with, you know, seven genes, HIV, seven genes and 12 proteins. I mean, it's nothing. And yet they direct the entire cell that, that has 100,000 proteins and complicated evasion techniques. Uh, anyway, I could go on. but So a virus laying on your kitchen table suddenly springs to life. No, he's alive. He's just sitting there. Okay. Well, tell me more about what does alive mean when it's just sitting there? Or uh, no, We don't know. No, or... We don't know, but it's not. Uh, well, it, it, it doesn't go by the normal definition of life, which is a cell that metabolizes, and I add to that, communicates. Yeah. But it does go that it's alive because then when it gets in the cell, it directs the cell, takes over, does all kinds of things, and has a very... Uh, elaborate lifestyle. So I assume it's alive, but since there's no definition of life that makes sense, yeah. any definition of intelligence or consciousness, none of these definitions make any sense. So we're obviously missing some huge piece of the puzzle in our basic physics, you know, in the basic understanding of nature. But I don't have to say they're alive. Just look at their lifestyle. Read the articles, read the section of viruses, you see the lifestyle. They certainly behave like they're alive. Um, the virus is as a virus does, in other words. That's right. Right. We just don't know. We just don't know. Okay. Very fascinating. This is so good. Let's jump to cancer. You know, I've, for about a year and a half, I've been deep down that rabbit hole. And uh, I would like to hear, like, start with your own definition. Like, I mean, as basic as that is, like, how do you even define it? Well, I do have a chapter on cancer in the first section. And so if a microbe is intelligent, a cancer cell is vastly more intelligent. It's thousands of times bigger. And it breaks the boundaries of the limitations of normal cells that normal cells have to live under. As cells develop from the fetus, the programs, the various 
They're called transcription factors, which is again a jargon, I'm sorry. Transcription factors are little proteins that are a language of what gene works here and what gene works there. And these factors determine what kind of cell it becomes. It becomes a neuron, it becomes this, it becomes that. But they also just respond to bumping into other cells. They also respond to where they are. They respond to gradients of uh, molecules and, and charge and all kinds of things. But the cancer cell starts. Now, every cell has genetic changes that go on. It's a very dynamic world in the nucleus. It involves constantly methylating, demethylating, constantly chemistries going on, putting acetals and methyls and phosphates on both the proteins that surround the DNA and the DNA itself in very specific places that allow it to work or not work. And there's breakage and then there's repair. There's transpositions that occur naturally through the meiosis, but also through jumping genes and through whatever. And so there's a lot of action going on. The best we know is that somehow a certain amount of mutations occur in every cell, and some of them build up in a particular cell, but there are certain pathways that are much more significant than others. Those are the pathways that run the editing and the pathways that run the repair. So when you get the, rep and there's, a, again, I could talk about that, but it's complicated. So there's repair pathways, there's the editing pathways, and then there are those that sort of limit reproduction, the ones that go into the reproductive cycle. They say you're not ready for that because you have certain problems in the DNA, and so they cancel it. And then there are overriding factors like P53 that are involved, and there are checkpoints along the way from the cell as to when they can divide. So if the cell is able to change, I say able to change because there's an argument about whether they could do it as a self-editing thing or whether it starts random and then it becomes self-editing. I don't know what point it becomes self-editing, but at some point it does because at some point they allow rapid mutations to occur. The other thing is inflammation is a chaotic environment. So they love inflammation. Inflammation is where all kinds of signals are going on. There's all kinds of breakage going on. So inflammation is a ready-made environment for a cancer development. And, uh, you know, they say high fat diet and inflammation, you know, is a ready-made environment for a cancer cell. But once they get into these crucial telomere, the dividing, once they get into the pathways that control these, they then break open where they could just keep dividing. And then as they keep dividing, different pockets, of, they're subgroups through them. And it's a little Darwinian at that point. And that's why T cells have a problem because T cells go after one particular kind of cell. And here you have five different subgroups already looking for primacy. So in a cancer, it's not one thing. It's a lot of different subgroups of cells growing. And the other thing is they're like microbes. They're comrades. They communicate among themselves. They protect their community. So they are sending signals constantly to the local fibroblasts, to the local cells to help them build they trick the immune cells like macrophages to come in and build the structure inside. They make blood vessels where no immune cells can get through the blood vessels. They know the language, so they manipulate. And the reason why they go to certain metastatic sites is that certain cancers seem to understand the local language better in the bone or in the lung or in the brain. And then they do remarkable things to get energy. They change their metabolism, their mitochondrion. And th this is interesting. They love two ways to communicate more than others. One is nanotubes. Now, we just recently, they're so tiny. We just recently discovered nanotubes and we're finding they're all over the place. And these uh, cytonemes, they're called, which is a stupid word. I call them nanotubes. Cancers love two kinds. One is a uh, a thick one that goes between a local cell. And they can actually, once they've manipulated a mitochondria into using the new kind of metabolism that will really give them, rev them up in the short term rather than the long term, they can make copies of that mitochondria and send it to their brethren in the nanotube. There are other nanotubes that go a big distance. They go, you know, a hundred cell lengths away 
So they're communicating. They also love exosomes, which are sacs, lipid sacs. They're like the sacs that neurotransmitters go, but they're much bigger. And they put in them, you know, like a resistance gene to like the way bacteria send resistance genes around either again through nanotubes, through vesicles, or through their own creation of virus signals. They actually make viruses and send them, or they have these, they look like launching pads of a rocket. They build these secretion systems and they can shoot them into another cell. So they build, all this is in the book, by the way, everything I'm saying now is in the book. Uh, so they, uh, the way microbes communicate genes to protect against uh, antibiotics, cancers do the same in a more intelligent way to the drugs we're giving them. They attract certain microbes. Microbes, you know, help start a lot of cancers. At least 10% we know about are from viruses or bacteria that help alter and redesign the, the genes of the cell and allow it to become a cancer cell. So as the cell becomes stronger and reproducing, it, it, it's attracted, it, it's building, it's not like it's just a cell, it builds an organ. It's intelligent enough to build, it's like it's building a liver or a pancreas. It builds a cancer organ, which has a structure. It has blood cells, it has fibroblasts, it has macrophages in there. They're, they have their manipulated version. In the brain, the astrocytomas who use, they use electrical gap junctions or their, their synapses where electricity just goes back and forth. These cancer cells are so smart, they make electrical junctions with all kinds of neurons where they're just feeding on the electricity from the neuron. And we don't understand how cells understand the electrical information that they're passing on. This is like beyond current science, but we do know that they do. And we know that they're getting huge amount of energy by connecting with other astrocytes and other neurons. So that's a way that, that unique to the brain cell. The other cancers love these exosomes, these sacs and the nanotubes and secreted signals. So they grow, they become intelligent, they send off their landing package. It's like a little satellite, like our Mars rover. They send out the satellite and it seems it lands. Now they have to understand the language of the local cells to live. They manipulate the ordinary conversations that are going on with fibroblasts and with connective cells. And they have to, when they land in a foreign site, they may just wait there. Time may not be right for whatever reason. And they then will start the process of signaling to their local, when they start building, they'll they get the local cells to build an organ, a new organ. So they're extremely intelligent cells. So James Shapiro, who discovered that bacteria rearrange their own G DNA, he describes life as systems all the way down. Yeah. And if I... I would describe your book as this is the book about life is communication all the way down, or maybe even intelligence all the way down. And you said at the beginning that you were interested in mind and like nobody really has a good definition of it. And until not too long ago, it's actually very unfashionable to even like be going down this rabbit. It was like, it was I know that's why I stayed total science you know that's why I, I didn't speculate that's why everything in my book is from a top journal it's a fact and it's just kind of obvious what's going on you know if you look well okay so this is how you protected yourself from like getting your legs blown off but you know right by the crazy people in all directions right okay so here we are with it we don't have a good definition of life we don't have a good definition of intelligence we don't have a good definition of mind. We're in the middle of this ineffable mystery of what even life is. Okay, so socially, we're trying to cure cancer. We're trying to solve viruses. We're trying to be healthier. We've got all these professions and everybody's got all these machine gun out, guns out anytime somebody gets too close to the fringes, right? So what's the way forward? How do you see us progressing from where we're at now? 
Well, when you say progressing, you mean in terms of understanding this, or you don't mean in terms of understanding and doing something about it, right? Not not just the mess that the world is becoming, uh, because it's possible the humans will wipe themselves out, and the microbes are going to, you know, just continue and do something new. I mean, you know, like they did after the dinosaurs died. I mean, they don't care; they'll just adapt uh, and live anyway. They eat the plastic; they eat everything. I mean, they don't care. You know, we had the oil spill and everyone says it's a disaster, but no, the microbes said we'll eat it. Don't worry. Uh, so uh, we uh, I have no answer to solve the human race. Uh, if you're asking the future, the way forward, understanding this stuff, I still have the belief. And it's a belief that there's so much science going on. Like most of the science is done in the last year. I mean, it's just unbelievable that if I can find enough information that we can extend this down further, the uh, intelligence. And I mean, to me, the next level down is the mTOR chapter, the last chapter in the book, Hmm. which is a molecule that senses all the needs of the cell. By itself, it's molecule. It's just a kinase. It, 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 it senses the need for amino acids. It senses the need for fatty, and it sits right next to the lysosome, which is a factory that breaks down things into their constituent. It makes material for the cell to rebuild. So the lysosome is the factory taking apart big molecules and giving. And the mTOR is sitting right outside determining, well, we need more of this, we need more of that, we don't need this, stop that, stop that. And by itself, this molecule determines how much protein we need and then stimulates the ribosome. And has, and the mTOR actually travels to the ribosome and has to be there to start the action. And it also has another group that builds, that directs the actin scaffolding, which is unbelievable. The scaffolding is vast communication. That's where Hameroff's, you know, the microtubules is the whole quantum theory, you know, of consciousness. It's the mTOR is directing all this. How can a molecule direct all this? And so to me, that's one example of an intelligent molecule. I now have others uh, that I'm working on. But then deeper than that is the electron transport and ATP is a deeper level, the electron, the photon instructs the electron that then gets to the centers that then travels from A, B, C, D. It's traveling down uh, like 15 different places where a metal, an iron, a copper, a metal sulfur uh, takes a little bit of the energy, then it moves along, moves along, moves along. And meanwhile, it's able to pump the proteins up and then that comes back through to this unbelievably complicated machine, the ATPase, that was here three billion years ago. We already had one of the most, I mean, I don't want to insult engineers. You're a wonderful engineer, but our engineers couldn't build ATPase. We couldn't. You're so, not insulting me. It's so far <laughs> beyond our ability scientifically that a little micro two billion years, three billion years ago made an ATPase. So to me, there's information there also at the level of electrons and protons and running. So to me, that's maybe the lowest level we can go because we all know that once you hit electrons and quarks, we can't observe anything smaller than that. So there's another 30 orders of magnitude going down from there to the quantum size, but we're never going to know that. And that's where mind probably is. I mean, that's where intelligence probably is lies. Well, this has been a very expansive discussion and the mysteries run in all kinds of directions. This is amazing. John, what do you hope happens because this book got published? Long after you're pushing up daisies, the world was changed because Give me a. Well, I think it's important for everyone to know that biology is run through information, intelligent action, signaling, communication, that that is how it runs. It doesn't run through random whatever. 
Yes. It runs through communication. I can't explain it all, but I, it's there. The science has proven it. There's no question about it. I think my book is just, it's kind of obvious when you read the book, you know, that intelligence cells are running everything. I don't know. I'm hoping, I've always thought, you know, the way science seems to work is the older professors, when changes occur, dig in and protect their grants and protect their professorships and their theories. And only the younger people take on the new information and build a new science from that. So the group that have seen that the current understandings may not be correct are, are a small group, but the kids, I mean, this is written to my children and to yeah. my, uh, that's my hope. I wrote that in the, in the beginning to my daughter. My daughter's a brilliant scientist and to um, public health. That's what I hope. I hope that it starts people to look even deeper into the intelligence, uh, you know, in, in below cells, in molecules, in, in nature itself. Well, John, I just salute you for doing this because if you forbid people from considering that life is intelligent down to the cellular level, you're forbidding people from ever understanding biology at all. Right. right? And then, then it just becomes a profession of understanding each other's jargon instead of actually understanding what's going on. And that's a terrible tragedy. And you're, I mean, this is just wonderful uh, what you're doing to push things the other way. And the secret language of cells, excellent book. Thank you. And uh, oh, and tell everybody if they want to go to your website and oh, yeah, yeah. follow you. How, how do they do that? Well, the website is either searching for the mind or johnleafmd.com. Now, no one can spell that as the problem because it's J-O-N. And the, the only time anyone ever spelled it that way was with John Stewart on The Daily Show. <laughs> Once that came, then people realized it could be spelled that way. But And then Leaf is spelled in a crazy way, L-I-E-F-F-M-D.com. And my Twitter is the same, at johnleafmd. And there's a lot of action on Twitter. I post my articles there and I post new articles that I'm finding every day. In other words, I'm constantly furthering this quest with recent articles. So I capture articles, they're coming out every day. I'm more active on Twitter than Facebook, but Facebook too, I do the same articles there. This has been great. John, thank you. Well, thank you for having me, it's been wonderful. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com. Evolution 2.0